So after I went to I went to seminary, I finished seminary in 2008, and then I moved to Denver for a year, Denver, Colorado. It was kind of a spur of the moment thing. It's a whole other story, but I was living in Denver, um, and I was working at a homeless shelter called the Catholic Worker House and doing um, a lot of tasks. <laughs> I was I was cooking a lot for people. Um, it was right after the housing the crisis in 07, 08, and so there were a lot of people who were homeless for the first time in their life. Than ever expected to be. Because usually you get a call, and this is like, oh, this is someone who's experienced calling a shelter, looking for that. And then there'd be a different one. This is a very different conversation. And I was never experienced receiving the call. And so there was a lot of growth in that. I, um, we received, someone donated a bison, so I had a thousand pounds of bison meat, um, <laughs> which there's only so much bison stew you can do. I tried to make a barbecue bison pizza once. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm a vegetarian, so I didn't even try, but <laughs> some, somehow I got offended when people weren't eating it. It was like, come on. Like, you can't just put barbecue sauce on trash and then call it food. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure lovely people love bison meat. So it's great. Uh, but and so after a while, though, th- through a lot of various discernments, realized I needed to come back and start the ordination process again. I had begun at a different conference, and so had to start over, had to move back to Austin. And a few doors opened up. Some friends of mine in, in Denver were moving back to Austin, too. So I just arrived. I had a place to stay when I arrived. I thought things were, doors were just opening up. It was going to be great. Um, and then I got back, and there were no open doors. Um, I moved back to Austin in 2009, and there were no, I thought, like, you know, I've got this wonderful seminary degree. I have all these skills. I'll be great. People will just want to hire me. And that was not, was not the case. Um, <laughs> There weren't, people weren't, weren't interested in, in hiring me. And that was, I thought, like, I've been training for this. God has called me for this. Um, and I had to start, I couldn't go into a church because I had to start in, back then there was this, like, little red book that you start the, the ordination process with. And so I had to start going conversations with a little red book. And then you get, like, the blue book. And then you get the, you know, Methodists are very methodical in that. <laughs> but I couldn't, like, skip ahead in that. And my first job I got was doing... So like SEO was search engine optimization in the late 2000s with plumbing supplies. And so I was looking at pipes and thinking, I need to think about 15 different words to describe this pipe. Um, and then there was the next pipe, which looked identical but wasn't. And so I had to think of 15 different words to describe this pipe. And so that was my first job um, back in Austin. I was still looking for a job in a church, trying to find a job in a church. I couldn't find it. Then I got a job with the census. I was a census supervisor. Um, which was an interesting experience. I had to do training for the first time in my life. That was my first leadership thing. But federal government training is very unique because you just have to read the notebook. Um, So I was given this three-inch binder, and I had to read everything, and that was it. Um, And I couldn't even make jokes, which is really hard to read bad literature and not make jokes. Uh, But I like, no jokes. Um, So that was my job. Finally, I got a job as as a church secretary, as an administrative assistant. And so that's what I was doing when Alina met me. Um, so the grace of God for her to see something in me when I was doing that was amazing. But I just felt, I felt I was being rejected again and again. Those, I wanted to serve God. I wanted to serve God, and those doors were not opening. And I was knocking, and it was not there. And that was hard. Now, not all of us are called to ministry, um, but most, many of us have felt that form of rejection, of thinking, okay, this is going to be the perfect job for me. This is going to be the perfect place for me to live, and it doesn't come through. This will be the perfect college. This will be the perfect town. This will be the perfect apartment or house. Why does it keep falling apart? (laughs) 
My friends, we're continuing our series on dealing with rejection. We're dealing with those parts of life that we don't like to talk about. One of the, the amazingly unique things about the Bible is from start to finish, it deals with rejection. With the very beginning, chapter 2, we have, um, or chapter 3 of Genesis is Adam and Eve rejecting God. And then it just goes on from there, over and over again, people rejecting God. The people of Israel rejecting God. The early church rejecting God. Kings who have been given their crowns by God and said, you are blessed, and they end up rejecting God. Solomon himself, given wisdom beyond the ages, ended up rejecting God. And yet God did not reject them. And so we learn from Scripture, we learn these three important things, that, that first of all, we will be rejected in this life. We can't try to avoid it. So often, if we try to avoid rejection, we're just going to fail. We have to realize it is a part of this broken world. The next part, though, is so important, is more important, the fact that our rejections do not define us. We are not defined by the people who say no to us. And third, most important of all, is that God does not reject us. God never rejects us. And so we take that and come to this, this famous passage, this Mary and Martha passage, this what I've heard in the common discourse of the South is Mary and Martha. Are you a Mary or a Martha? I heard recently, um, I never heard this before, um, but some people would say, like, now may, may, may you have a Merry Christmas and not a Martha Christmas. <laughs> uh, and that kind of thing. And so I grew up with one, one reading of this, this passage, this famous passage of, of Jesus going to visit Mary and Martha. In the Gospel of John, Mary and Martha are the sisters of Lazarus. But um, he's not mentioned here, but that's still also. So it's, it's good friends. Jesus is going to visit their house. Now, one way I've, I've heard it and read, and the kind of way I understood it much of my life, was that um, Mary is the good one, and Martha is not the good one. And, and Martha represents works righteousness, trying to earn our salvation, and Mary represents grace. And shouldn't we be more like Mary and not like Martha, always busy bodying around? Okay? Um, that was kind of the implied reading of me growing up. It was like, let's just try and be more, let's even that, that have a Merry Christmas and not a Martha Christmas, as if being Martha is bad, um, which is never said in the text. It never says, Martha, you're bad. Um, it just says, Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better part. Yet so often, for us, when, we say, when someone next to us is being praised and we are not, it's often like, well, what about us? And that kind of thing. And that's, but that's not what Jesus is doing out. And the praise of God is not a zero-sum game. Just because one thing is better doesn't mean the other thing is not good. The early church saw it um, in a very different way. St. Augustine, uh, one of the fathers of the church, thought that everybody in this life is a Martha. We're all toiling in this life. And we all have a lot of distractions, as, as Martha does. We have a lot of distractions, a lot of things that keep us from. But in the life to come with God, we will be like Mary, because we will be in the presence of God. We will be focused on the one thing. As well, early church fathers, another way they saw about it was that was Martha was the laity, and then Mary was the, the monks and the nuns, the, the monastics, the people who had dedicated their life. And so if you could take a vow of poverty and chastity and obedience, then you could be like Mary. But otherwise, just be happy being a Martha. Um, so that was another reading. Uh, and so these, are, these kind of like, whoa, another, they also, they saw this as, Mar as Martha representing the action of grace in our life, and Mary representing contemplating God and God's grace. Another way, a ray that I, I've come across recently and been very moved by, is seeing the mutual need of Mary and Martha. That, that Mary needs Martha and Martha needs Mary. That Jesus is going to visit this house. 
He's not going for like a dinner party and then to leave. He doesn't have a house in the area that he's going to. He's going to stay. And when you go to stay at someone's house, uh, they're, they're going to offer them food and housing and going to be taken care of. And so there's, there's a way and a need that in order for Mary to be at the feet of Jesus, Martha needed to be doing the things she was doing. To, to keep, keep the house, to get the food on the table, to make sure the bed was ready. They need each other. Without the action of grace in our life, we cannot take the time to contemplate our Lord. And without taking the time to contemplate our Lord, we don't know what to do. So often, the, the way of life, the way of following the, way, the life of Jesus is a road with a lot of distractions on it, right? That's what, that's what Martha has. Martha has a lot of distractions, and we need to follow the one thing that Mary points to, sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to what he says. And then we take care of those things. But do we receive the grace to even come to that feet, to come to that house. You see, Jesus knew them before he arrived at the house. They had already received that grace. This is not a step before knowing Jesus. Mary and Martha are not two paths before Jesus, but after. How do we respond to the unearned grace in our life? How do we respond that we, don't, that we receive love even when we don't deserve it? How do we respond that God does not reject us even when we feel so rejectable? In those times in our life when we feel like everyone rejects us and most of all we reject ourselves and yet God does not. And that's the power of grace in our life. And do we receive that grace? Do we accept it that we are loved? Do we accept that we don't need to be a Martha or a Mary to be loved by God? That those are not ways that we need to act but responses to God's love in our life. As well, this, this passage from Colossians uh, is really super philosophical in a lot of ways um, and complicated, but I think it points to one of the concrete ways of Mary and Martha, that Mary and Martha point to the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is God and human together. That in Colossians, Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. And then at the end of the passage, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself all things. We need action and contemplation. We cannot have a faith that is just in our heads. We cannot have a faith that is just of spirituality, or else we will lose our grip on the world we live in. We don't, we don't go to someone, we're not, you know, we don't go to someone who's grieving and say, don't worry about it. Right? You don't go to someone who's hurting, who's just gone through a really life tragedy, and say, you know, just, th- just sit at the feet of Jesus and it'll all be okay. And that's not, that's not what Jesus ever does. He heals people. He doesn't go to the leper and say, don't worry about it, your body doesn't matter. He heals him. <clears throat> that our bodies matter. Jesus was created, he had flesh and blood and bones and hair. <clears throat> And he went and he ate food and he broke bread. That the, the, the materiality of God matters as well as the spirituality, as the immateriality, as the thinking of God. And so often our, our faith ends up veering in one direction or the other. So often we veer towards, I'm going to focus on the doing things. Or I'm going to focus on the praying things. Or maybe some, some people, a lot of people think, 
um, and conceive of themselves in only one category and conceive of themselves of only, oh, I'm, I'm, such a, I'm a Martha, I do the Martha things. I can't do that Mary thing. I can't sit still. Um, or I, can't, um, I can only sit still. I can't get up and do, you know, and that kind of capacity. But God doesn't form us for that one thing. God continually forms and transforms us. God redefines us. And yet in this world we live in, we are being defined by what we do. So often it is how we get to know someone is talking about what we do, what our job is. In other parts of the world, usually you get to know someone by talking about where they're from. What village are they from? What town are they from? And here it's much more of like, what do you do? What did you do? What have you done? (laughs) In that kind of way. We are defined by that, defined by the box the world wants to put us in. But that is not who we are. Especially if your times in your life, like I was, when looking for a job, if you've been, ever been looking for a job, it's so easy to define your life by that quest and be like, I am, I am unemployable. Nobody wants me. But that is not who you are. And on the inverse side, sometimes you're super successful in life and you've had the awesome career and you've done all the awesome things and you think, wow, I am so awesome. I have done the things. It is just because of my awesomeness that I got all these. It's not just randomness. It's not because my uncle owns the company. I did this. Sometimes, I don't know, I, I don't watch a lot of those, but if you ever watch some of those like real estate shows on HGTV and it's like, I am a... Um, I design, I design rubber chickens, and, and I, write, I write on the back of potato cans, and then, but we have a budget of $900,000 for this house. Have you ever seen that? In the way, like the absurdity, it's like, oh, I, I, I got myself out of debt when I was 25 because my parents gave me $200,000. It's like, that's way to pick yourself up. Um, so, but so often that's the narratives we tell about ourselves. And society tells us that, gosh, how, you should be ashamed of yourself that no one gave you a lot of money when you were young. Or you should be ashamed of yourself that no one opened a door for you that you didn't even knock on. When, when that's not what God ever tells us. That we are not what we do. We are not what is in our mortgage or in our bank accounts. We are not those good decisions we make. We are beloved children of God. First and foremost. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be responsible with what we are given, but we are beloved children of God. Offered grace, offered an opportunity to respond, to respond to the presence of God with us. And even when we're dealing with rejection in our life, God is present with us, and so we can choose how to respond. We can redefine our life. We may have been defined, we may feel like we've been defined by other people, but we can redefine our life, and we do that through habits. We do that through building up new habits of grace, what Wesley calls the means of grace. These are practices that it's not that you are good at or not good at. It's like riding a bicycle. Loving your neighbor really is like riding a bicycle. Um, If you first try and ride a bicycle, it's hard. (laughs) If you think about learning to ride it for the first time and getting on that and trying like, let me just try it without training wheels. And you sit and you fall. And that's so often for many of us when we stretch ourselves in loving our neighbor. It's like, this is not easy for me. I just want to do easy things. This is not easy for me. Can I just go back to the thing I used to do? But what happens with us when we do those not easy things is that our hearts are reformed. 
our conceptions of ourselves are redefined. We see ourselves not just as the things we desire or the jobs we have done or the places we've lived. We see ourselves as the hands and feet of Jesus. We see the opportunities. And the amazing thing that happens to us through these means of grace is that instead of thinking how awesome we are, we think how great God is to bring us into these positions to love other people. And there will be times of rejection. I have a friend who was uh, uh, in the Peace Corps in, in Guatemala. And the thing he turned, uh, he returned and said, he spent three years there, and he's a very, very holy person. But he said, what I learned from there is that poor people can be very mean. But that was a revelation for him. He, didn't, he had never had that experience that people can be mean. And, you, and a lot of people go into a situation where they're serving others and think, how grateful you should be for me. But that's not the point. The point of, of offering ourselves to others is not to receive gratitude back, but to go and see where Jesus is, to respond to God, to respond to that one thing. And in this broken world, oftentimes when we go and offer God's grace to people, we will be spurned and rejected. And that doesn't mean we should shut down. It means especially that we should not be doing things alone. In, in the chapter before, earlier, when Jesus sends out the 70, he sends them out in twos. He doesn't send them out in ones. He sends them out in twos because two, two is better than one. Um, and when you are going, going to see, to visit someone, going to share with someone, Another person helps you understand what's really going on. So often we can get stuck in our head. But these means of grace, they are, they are offering, offering food to the hungry, offering water to the thirsty, visiting the sick and those imprisoned. Those are the, the works of mercy that, um, that John Wesley would talk about, as well as the works of piety. The, the works of mercy are the kind of the Martha ones. The works of piety are the Mary ones. The, the praying um, consistently, the reading, the searching the scriptures, Fasting, participating in holy conversation. These are things that are not just kind of good ideas that you should try sometime, or not just like one, one neat trick in order to help you. But if we want to see Jesus and sit at the feet of Jesus, we do these things. That God works in mysterious ways. God works in myriad of ways that we cannot predict, but we know God works in these ways. God is here when we worship. God is here when we search the scriptures. God is here when we offer to others. And we practice that. God is here at Berkeley when we do those things. And we have um, many offerings of, of doing the means of grace, of sharing life with other people, of sharing the word of Jesus, of praying together. We can do that together. I think so often what it means to be a Methodist church in general is being a location of the means of grace in the community, a location where we can offer that grace. We're a place where we baptize, where we bury people, where we pray to God, but also where we offer growth that we believe as Methodists that you are not finished when you are saved. You're not finished when you are baptized, but in honesty, you begin. And you have the opportunity to grow in grace. The opportunity to be redefined. To turn continually your life around. To go continually in this, in this, this flux from Mary to Martha of taking the time to sit at the feet of Jesus, to taking the time to offer bread to Jesus. And to be renewed in that. And so, my brothers and sisters, will you let the world define your worth? Will you let, it, let yourself just be who people say you are? Or will you receive God's love that you are a child of God?
that what you do matters, that what you think matters, that you are not your past or your history. You are not those stories of rejection. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. And you can use those to offer grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.